Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. That was definitely weirded out. You know, it's a long way from faking data to murder. There are words that no one likes to be called, especially in their fragile 11th year of existence. Nerd, freak, dork, slut, suck-up, prude. For me, the word was poser. Hanging around the skate parks with my skateboarder friends, dressed like them but not doing any actual skating, I got a lot of that. I couldn't stand it. I was being accused of not knowing who I was, or worse, of knowing and trying to hide it. But who was I? And what was I doing wearing those skate shoes and hoodies? It couldn't have been that I just liked the style. Part of me must have really wanted in on the cool. Looking back, I have to face the awful fact that sixth grade me was an imposter. In sixth grade, it's hard to know who you are. But as you get older, you're supposed to figure it out. It's one of the tough parts of becoming an adult. All those possibilities collapse into one, and if you don't stick with whatever you are, you're a poser. The California Poet Laureate Quincy Troop was a poser. He lost his job for pretending he'd graduated from one college when actually he hadn't graduated at all. And then there's the accountant who suddenly decides he wants to be a poet, prompting strange looks from his wife. Of course, there is a fine line between posing and becoming, which is good news for all wannabe poets and accountants. But beware, for failure leaves you trapped in that awkward space between the domain of the imposter. Well, awkward or not, that's where we're hanging out today, in that place that a failed attempt to be someone else leaves us. Fakes, frauds, phonies, what are they but attempts at change gone bad? I'm Charlie Mintz, and this is the Stanford Storytelling Project from 90.1 KZSU. First up on our show, a story about an ex-mafioso turned private detective who made his living not by investigating the truth, but by telling his clients the lies they wanted to hear. Second, a story about the discovery and entrapment of a research scientist who, when he didn't get the results he wanted, faked them on his computer and fooled an entire department for a very long time. And last in our show, a memoir by Stanford author Maria Hummel about the straight hair she had but never wanted, and that particular brand of longing known as curl envy. All these stories coming to you this hour from your bona fide source of audio pleasure, the Stanford Storytelling Project. Stay with us. And at the heart of every good detective story, there's a mystery. In this case, it's not about cheating husbands or graphic violence or possible CIA involvement, though all of those things come into play. The real mystery is about the detective, and it goes something like this. How does a private investigator who has no work ethic, who is missing a leg, and who is legally blind manage to make a living? I call it the case of the degenerating detective. I first met Patty Calabresi when I was 18. My mom had interned with him during a brief post-retirement flirtation with detective work, inspired by her attempts to locate an old French boyfriend of hers, Patrick Chapuis. To find him again, after 30 years, she'd had to hire detectives in three countries. It took months, but she enjoyed the process so much, she decided to pursue it as a second-string career. For a brief period of time, she was both an airline pilot and a private detective. After a few cases, however, she decided the work wasn't for her, which is how it felt to me. My family seems to have a genetic predisposition for mysteries. 
While I didn't meet my father until I was 12, when I did, I discovered that he was, among other things, a professional magician. My mother raised me on the Hardy Boys, the Boxcar Children, and my personal favorite, Murder, She Wrote, the TV show starring Angela Lansbury as novelist-slash-detective Jessica Fletcher. So when my mom suggested I help Patty out for the summer, it sounded like a dream job. I'd be just like Jessica Fletcher, only without the old person smell. I first met Patty at his office, an old-fashioned storefront in Seattle's Pioneer Square, distinguished by a huge neon eye affixed to the brickwork outside. When I came in, he was sitting at a large mahogany desk, chomping on a cigar. At least 60 years old, he reminded me of J. Jonah Jameson, the brash, blunt, quaintly chauvinistic newspaper editor from Spider-Man. Within 20 minutes of our meeting, he'd enlisted me to join him on my first case, though not before giving his opinion on my style of dress and general appearance. Some crack detective work revealed I needed nicer shoes and should try to eat more. The case was what passes for bread and butter in the private detective business. In two weeks' time, we would travel to the inn at Point Pleasant, a hotel about four hours away on the Olympic Peninsula. We'd been asked to attend a corporate event at the behest of a board member's wife, who believed her husband was still cheating on her with one of his co-workers. He'd been caught once before, but claimed the affair was over. We were supposed to find out if that were true. The next couple weeks I spent answering phones and speaking with walk-ins at the office taught me that the only thing on most of our clients' minds was whom their loved ones were sleeping with. I started to think that Jessica Fletcher was pretty damn lucky to have stumbled upon all those grisly homicides. Say what you will about murder, at least it's a bold gesture. In his defense, Patty had never planned to get into the PI business. In fact, he had what might be the most bizarre history of any private detective in the country. As a child in Buffalo, New York, Pascale Calabrese, nicknamed Patty, was raised in the world of organized crime. The infamous Buffalo crime family, run by the Magadino clan, was a branch of the mafia that could trace its lineage back to the inception of La Cosa Nostra in the U.S. during the first few decades of the 20th century. So powerful that it was often referred to simply as the arm, the Magadino family had Patty made by the time he was 25 years old. Unfortunately, he interpreted that to mean he'd become invincible overnight. The account of his attempted holdup of the treasurer's office at Buffalo City Hall paints him less like a cunning mafioso enacting a well-conceived heist than a two-bit thug desperate for spending money. The stunt landed him five years in prison and a large black mark in the mob's books. Figuring he should reap what he'd sown, the Magadinos refused to support Patty's family after his conviction. To their surprise, instead of taking this insult like a good underling, he turned state's evidence becoming the first person ever to enter WITSEC, or what is more commonly known as the Witness Protection Program. From there, the story only gets stranger. When Patty was relocated by the government, he brought along his new wife, Rochelle, who had three children from a previous marriage. These children, who typically divided their time between Rochelle and her husband, were entered into WITSEC. Their names were changed and the records of their relocation sealed. Their father woke up one day to discover he no longer had children. His search for them, which lasted a number of years, was recounted in a book called Hide in Plain Sight, which was eventually turned into a film directed by and starring James Caan. Danny Aiello's in it too, of course, because it's about the mob. Soon after their relocation, Patty divorced Rochelle and began doing undercover work for the police to pay the bills. He shed his false name, as the Buffalo crime family had disintegrated not long after he testified against them, and opened his own detective agency, Intertel. 
Though he did a lot of legitimate work with the police, it was the divorce jobs that paid the bills. Before long, the majority of his clients were jilted wives and cuckolded husbands. Two other things I think I should mention. First, Patty was severely diabetic. His diabetes was the stuff of nightmares. One of his favorite stories to tell was about how he'd lost his left leg. I was walking around the pool at this hotel in Miami, he'd explain in a voice husky with braggadocio, and I went to the lobby to grab an extra towel. Concierge says, Sir, your foot's bleeding. I looked down and the thing's practically melted off. Because of the lack of sensation that is one of the symptoms of late-stage diabetes, Patty hadn't felt his foot burning on the cement around the pool. By the time he'd arrived at the hospital, the infection had spread too far. Along with his leg, the diabetes had also claimed Patty's vision. In spite of this, he still occasionally drove from work to home, a stunt he pulled off through a combination of memorization, squinting hard enough to make out the lane dividers, and being chummy with the entire Seattle police force. Obviously, on the way up to the inn at Point Pleasant, I drove. By the time we checked into the hotel, the opening mixer was already underway. I posed as Patty's son, getting a bead on our man, the possibly reformed husband, while my so-called father flirted loudly with the spiky-haired bartender, asking a few relevant questions, but mostly just screwing around. It was my job to ID the guy, because Patty was unable to make out faces reliably. I finally located him, standing in the corner with a group of men. They were yucking it up as if congregated around an imaginary water cooler. The woman with whom he'd previously been involved entered a few minutes later, but she and her one-time lover never so much as shared a glance. I snapped pictures of them while pretending to photograph the lake outside. After about twenty minutes of this, Patty was ready to call it a night. Put the camera away, he said. Nothing's going on here. You're right, I answered. They wouldn't do anything out in the open. That's not what I mean, Patty clarified. There's nothing going on here. It's done. They're done. By Patty's reckoning, we'd discharged our duty. The job was over. When I said that we ought to watch the couple's rooms tonight to see if they sneaked out, Patty waved me away. We can't work 24 hours a day, he said. Of course, I'd already seen the envelope full of $100 bills, our client's upfront payment for a solid weekend of surveillance. It was at that moment that I realized I was working for a fraud. The PIs are supposed to be symbols of take-no-prisoners truth-seeking. Where was the dedication? Where was the stakeout? What would Jessica Fletcher think? That night I slipped out of my cot at the foot of Patty's bed. I knew what floor our client's husband was on, but not his supposed paramour. For more than two hours I prowled up and down the stairs and hallways, ready at any moment to put on the appearance of a wayward, possibly deranged guest. Once I heard the sound of a door cracking open behind me, which shut again as soon as I turned around. What Patty had said ended up being true. The only way to really know what someone's doing is to watch them all the time, and nobody can do that. I want to know what asshole my ex-wife is dating, another client told me over the phone. It was the first case Patty let me take on alone. I was supposed to follow the ex-wife around and keep track of where she went. If I were lucky, I'd happen upon the asshole. She always left her house around 7.30 in the morning, and I felt about as subtle as a police car with its siren blaring as I pulled out and followed her to the freeway. 
She drove a slick new Mercedes, and I was driving a 1984 Volvo station wagon, a car that actually groaned when called upon to climb any grade steeper than a wheelchair ramp. I managed to keep her in sight all week, but she never met up with anyone, and our client decided to pull the plug. For all I know, his ex was dating Brad Pitt, or no one at all. But what was weird is that I really didn't care. Imagine watching an episode of Scooby-Doo all the way up to the point where the crew is about to pull off the mask of the terrifying monster and just turning off the television. That was the kind of person I'd become. Two months and only a few cases as a private eye, and I was already sick to death of mysteries. It was late August when Patty and I went out on our last case together. A woman had called the office claiming that her apartment was bugged. The Patriot Act had recently been passed into law, so I figured anything was possible. Her directions led us to a project tenement downtown. There were holes in the walls and graffiti everywhere. Certain apartments within the building were condemned, cordoned off from the hallways with a few strands of yellow caution tape. Our client, who looked 25 from a few angles and 45 from all the rest, had the taut, ravaged skin and patchy hair of someone suffering from severe malnutrition. Some part of her body was always moving, and she spoke with the frantic gravity of a meth addict or auctioneer. I'm so f***ing glad to see you guys, she said. Their voice is coming out of my oven. She pointed towards the vent above her range. Patty listened closely, then gestured for me to hand him the metal briefcase I was carrying. Inside was a very professional-looking bug-sniffing device. The woman was clearly impressed. Show me where you think the microphones are, Patty said. The bug sniffer made a humming, fluttering noise, kind of like when a bee gets really close to your ear. When Patty pointed it towards the electrical outlets, the frequency leapt a couple of octaves. I kept one eye on the woman, who I feared might try to kill us for drug money, or because she wanted Jodie Foster to notice her. Patty asked me to unscrew the outlet cover. The plaster disintegrated as I removed the sockets, and after exploratory surgery inside the wall turned up nothing irregular, our client was left with a gaping hole in her wall. I wanted Patty to tell this woman that she was crazy, and to seek help, so we could leave. Instead, he continued scanning the room. It soon became obvious, to me at least, that the bug sniffer was nothing but a glorified metal detector. It registered when pointed at the television, the VCR, the free weights in the corner, even some of the studs in the walls. What do you think? Our client asked, wringing her hands. Patty considered for a moment. I think you might have something. What? I couldn't help but say. That thing went off wherever you pointed it. Sure, Patty answered, but there were some reactions in the wall I want to check out more. I couldn't understand what was happening. Patty had been on this job for years now. He was no Jessica Fletcher, but he was no idiot either. This woman was so obviously a nut job, she was practically a cliché. I stood there, speechless, as our client's anxiety suddenly gave way to friendliness, even what might have passed at an N.A. meeting for composure. She started telling Patty about her father. Apparently, he'd worked in Nicaragua during the Iran-Contra scandal, which was why she believed the CIA had bugged her apartment. After 20 minutes of chatting, he brought the conversation back around to the job. Maybe I could come by again later in the week with some other equipment. We could grab a bite to eat afterwards. That'd be nice, the woman said. Of course, Patty hastened to add. I'll still have to charge my usual rate. So that was the plan. All the talk about her father, the seeming sympathy about the voices, it was just a cover. Patty was exploiting her paranoia to get more business. The woman paid up an amount of money that had to be a significant percentage of her savings. And for the first time since I'd started working as a detective, I was angry. 
Patty had made me complicit in his deception. I was on the brink of walking out, of leaving him there to find his own way home. Just this once, he'd be the one left in the dark, instead of his clients. And at that moment, as I was about to strand a nearly blind old man in a bad neighborhood, the woman took Patty's hand in hers. She leaned forward so he could put his arms around her. Thank you, she said. Out in the hall, Patty tried to explain what had happened. Sometimes, he said, you just have to tell people what they want to hear. I hadn't known about Patty's history with the Mafia while I was working for him. In fact, I didn't learn about it until earlier this year, when I went on the radio to speak about the summer I'd spent as a private eye. During that same conversation, I learned that Patty had died of a heart attack a few years before, in 2005. It's awkward to learn about someone's death on the air. A response was expected, of regret or grief or even ambivalence. But I didn't know what to say. After everything that had happened, how did I feel about Patty? Hide in Plain Sight, the book based on Patty's life, or the lives of the people he affected, at any rate, doesn't paint a pretty picture of the man. He doesn't come across with the pathos of a Tony Soprano or the moral anxiety of a Michael Corleone. Instead, we find just another petty criminal, possibly abusive towards his family, who manages to pull off two separate robberies. The literal one that he only escaped by betraying his mafia family, and the figurative one involving his wife's children. But the Patty I knew, a 60-year-old man flirting with 20-year-old bartenders and pridefully recounting all the criminals he'd helped to catch during his time with the police, didn't resemble the character in the film at all. I couldn't help but remember how he'd treated that woman in the tenement, the gentle way he'd allowed her to maintain her illusions. And what about that first client, who feared her husband was still sleeping with another woman? Did Patty do the same thing for her? After all, she'd already caught her husband cheating once, and she'd managed to forgive him for that. Maybe Patty figured it was better to allay her fears, even if they were warranted. Maybe that was just his style, his P-I-M-O. Every day he had to balance truth and deception, maintaining his client's hopes in the face of despair and disappointment. It was a job that even a half-blind, half-ambulatory ex-mafioso slacker could do, but not because it was easy, just because he had what it took. To be honest, I still haven't decided whether or not Patty was a good man, but I'm convinced now that he was a good detective. I'm very sorry to hear he's gone, was what I said to my interviewer, just a few moments after she informed me that Patty had passed away. While my summer as a detective taught me nothing, if not that the business of a private eye can be squalid and corrupt, it also showed me that there's a fine line between deceit and grace. It was sad to think that Patty would no longer be there in his office, promising to solve people's mysteries, but really doing more to solve their problems. And sure, maybe I'm romanticizing. Maybe Patty really was just lazy, or indifferent, or dishonest. But I choose to think that he was better than that. Obituarists enjoyed mentioning the fact that Patty had always bragged he would die of natural causes, and not from a bullet in the back. Far be it from me to take a shot now. Tommy Wallach is a graduate student in the communication department at Stanford. He can also be found on YouTube. I got a gift from the bartender 
The drink I bought for you marked Return to sender I may be drunk I may be sober Scratch that I'm drunk Won't you come over Ruse number two, Scientist vs. Scientist. Storytelling project producer Matt Larson brings us a different kind of detective story. This one about two scientists on opposite sides of the truth. PhD programs can be stressful. A lot is at stake. And if the results of your experiments don't work out the way you want, there's a big temptation to cheat. Most scientists resist that temptation, but sometimes they don't. This story is about two scientists, one who could resist and one who couldn't. Lawrence and I are classmates in a biology PhD program at Stanford. Lawrence has intense, dark eyes and keeps his hair at a stubble. Most of the time, he's steady and easygoing. But when the topic turns to science, his eyes brighten, and his demeanor suggests an almost giddy fascination. During his first year in grad school, Lawrence was trying to channel this excitement by picking a lab for his PhD research. Often, students like Lawrence narrow it down to a few choices, and then do quick, three-month rotations in each of the labs to find out whether or not it's a fit. Here's Lawrence describing his final rotation. My first year as a graduate student in Stanford, it was my third rotation. My advisor had given me the task of basically repeating some experiments that our lab had been doing in collaboration with another lab across the country. The whole thing started with one incredible movie. One evening, Lawrence and I attended a lecture given by a professor in our department. Our primary motivation for going to these talks was usually the pizza and beer provided afterwards. And from the slouched postures and heavy eyelids of the rest of the audience, it was clear this was their incentive as well. It's not easy to think about science at 7 p.m. after a full day in the lab, and the darkly lit auditorium wasn't really helping. But this talk blew everyone away. Basically, he was showing cells from your human body signaling in response to stimuli that could come from foreign pathogens and things. So during so this the is disease, a immune response? Yeah, it's an immune response, immune system cells. I mean, imagine sitting in an auditorium and there's a big movie screen. It's basically just a movie, and you see one cell is the star of the movie, and, and um, he starts the movie, and you initiate some stimulus in the cell that approximates what would happen in your body when that cell recognizes an infected cell in your body and then you can see because there was a fluorescent dye in the cell that was illuminating one particular um, signaling molecule within the immune system cell and you could see patterns of signaling. It was a wave of fluorescence. When it hit the nucleus it split into two pieces and moved around the nucleus of the cell and then met up on the other side and then once it met up it exploded into it looked exactly like a fireworks display in, in a T-cell. The audience oohed and awed when they saw these images of signaling in cells. You know, when you see a movie of something like that imaging, you're watching directly as things happen within the cells. And so it's a very direct way of seeing results. When somebody shows you a table, you can get excited about that. But when you see a movie, for some reason, people, are, I think, get more excited. What was so exciting about these results? besides a cellular fireworks display? It indicated that there could be these patterns in a cell 
that are telling you something about the signal they're receiving. You know, it could be responding to, um, you know, particles from a virus or from, uh, you know, bacterium, or it could resp be responding to, um, you know, a graft. Basically, anything the cell sees as a threat, it responds to, and it responds to each of these threats in a different way. Except the cell does everything in its own language, a kind of cellular code. Lawrence was trying to make sense of this code. So scientists love things like that, where you have different responses to different stimuli because scientists are trying to understand how the cells are responding to these different things in different ways and if there's just patterns you know you know shapes and speeds of signals within the cells that we can see then maybe they tell us something about how the cells doing that and so i thought it was a really great opportunity i remember leaving thinking i got to talk to him right away but as is often the case in research things didn't work quite as well as he planned three months of working, trying to set up the experiments in our lab and thinking we were just not doing it right. Especially being a rotation student, when you go into a lab, I mean, if you ask any graduate student, you know, 99% of rotation projects don't result in anything fruitful. And that's mostly because it takes a long time to get things to work because you're just, you're, you're usually making mistakes because you're learning. Um, and so I thought I was just making mistakes and not doing something right. And it was very frustrating. I remember s sitting in the microscopy room, a dark room, you know, like a closet, uh, trying to make these movies and just not getting any, not getting enough signal. Fortunately for Lawrence, someone had already done an experiment similar to this in another lab across the country. These were Lawrence's collaborators, and he decided to call them to get some advice. Now I should mention here that the names in this story have been left out to preserve the anonymity of the people involved. But just to keep track, there is Lawrence's collaborator, a bigwig scientist who runs the research lab at a large state school in the Midwest, and the postdoctoral researcher, or postdoc, someone a little older than Lawrence who works under the collaborator in that lab. We talked to them and, and we had like a conference call and tried to get some input on what we could be doing. They sort of gave us these vague lines. Of, it took them three years or something to be able to set up this instrument, and so you shouldn't expect to be able to just do it in a couple of months. And then I came back and said, you know, I did these things, and they haven't made a difference, and so then we made the decision that I should go to their lab and, and see what was going on. This kind of thing happens a lot, especially amongst collaborators. Sometimes an experiment is so intricate and so precise that it's just not possible to explain it over the phone or through an email in sufficient detail. Instead of spending another few months troubleshooting the problem, Lawrence decided it would be easier and faster to go to that lab to learn at the foot of the master. And while to Lawrence, it seemed like a friendly visit, his collaborators weren't so sure. I knocked on the door, the, the uh, PI's office, and I, I went in and he realized who I was and he said, uh-oh, it's the SWAT team. Then there was the little matter of the microscope. Um, so, well, the first thing that happened is I took a look at their microscope. And this is where things started to seem strange, because their microscope was basically a piece of um, crap. I certainly didn't say, you know, your microscope's crap, we shouldn't be able to do this. I just kind of went along with it. Because, to be honest, at this point, I was wondering if, you know, some data was being faked. Take a second to imagine Lawrence's situation. A first-year graduate student, only three months into his research, wondering if a whole body of published results from his collaborator's lab were faked. 
Lawrence's advisor had raised this very possibility before Lawrence flew across the country, and Lawrence himself had talked him out of it. We had actually had a conversation where he mentioned, where, he, where I think he said, do you think this could be fake? I remember saying, you know, I, I think it's more likely that we're just doing something differently from what they're doing. But after seeing the microscope in the collaborator's lab, Lawrence went from doubting himself to doubting someone else, the postdoc. Here's Lawrence describing his first interactions with the postdoc. He was, he made a lot of jokes and he was friendly and he made it seem like I wasn't going to be able to learn how to do what he could do. He just, he just seemed more pessimistic about it. Well, so we made those measurements that first day, and that took um, most of the day. So we collected all this data, took a bunch of DVDs back to the hotel room. The raw data looked strange. Um, he he had given me about 100 images, so it took me a long time to go through them because I didn't know which ones had signal in them. He said he thought that he saw something while we were taking the movies, so he kind of hinted that there might be something in there to find. Okay. Uh, I hadn't seen anything. It just looked like noise. It looked like you turn your... Um, television on and it's you know not tuned properly you get just snow so i started looking through them one by one and then i came across one where you know halfway through the movie this ball of you know bright signal went in a circle like it could have been a cell outline like sort of an oval across the screen i was a little bit startled and so i started looking at that one more closely and the first thing i noticed is that there were pixels in the region of the image where the bright signal was that were all the exact same value. So the way an image file works is you have an array of pixels, and each pixel has a number associated with it. That's the brightness of that pixel. It usually goes like from 0 to 4096. And so normally, in a normal image, you get a broad distribution of different pixel values because the you know each pixel records many photons in an image, and so it's broadly distributed. In this little fireball of intensity, you would see you know six pixels that were all 2,142, and then you would see five more pixels that were all 1,753, and you know that's really, really weird. Now, at this point, I thought it was faked, and I just thought I needed to find better evidence. To anyone else, this would have been devastating. Remember, these faked images formed the very movies that got Lawrence excited about the research in the first place. And now he had just found out that the elaborate patterns had been entirely fabricated. But Lawrence is a scientist down to his bones. And when one avenue of research closed, a brand new problem presented itself in Lawrence's mind. How to catch a fraud. You know, so I I wasn't 100% sure, but it looked really, really strange. And it was very, it was very exciting to see that. I mean, I was, I really was sort of thinking like... You know, I'm really onto something. He's he might really be faking all of this. Most image acquisition software that scientists use doesn't have a tool where you can draw on your movie because most people don't want to do that. So he probably saved it as a different t- file type so that he could draw on it, and then resaved it as the original file type, and then that's why there are those strange pixel values there. So that made sense. So then I did a lot of pacing around, walking around. Uh, the campus um, thinking about what I could do to get better evidence that he was actually faking it. I mean, I wanted a slam dunk case. So the idea I came up with is that I would ask to prepare the sample and I would leave out the dye that illuminates the signaling. And without that dye, there's absolutely no way you should be able to do the experiment. But if he was drawing on blank 
images, he wouldn't know the difference. And he'd probably fake the data again if he did it today. So I just tell him I didn't find anything in those images. Let's take some more. You know, can I learn to prepare the sample myself? And then if he did it again, then I'd know for sure. Well, I went in and asked to prepare the sample, and he said, yeah, sure, that's fine. Um, he even let me do the whole experiment myself. So I pricked myself and, you know, got blood out and centrifuged the cells out and added nothing to the cells, basically. I, I took the dye out and pipetted it into the trash. I took the sample and put it on the microscope the same way and took a, a whole bunch of images. I took, you know, 100 images again. And I got lazy during the middle of it, and so I had the illumination off for some of the images. I mean, I was just taking white noise. You said that you uh, pipetted some of the dye in the trash. Did you did you do that thinking, like, he might actually check? or? Yeah, he might. I mean, who knows? Maybe, maybe he knows how much dye is in there or something. I, you know... I don't know why I did it. I just, did it just feel kind of dramatic? Yeah, it felt kind of dramatic. <laughs> he came back and I gave him the images, which were just white noise. And I told him I went through them and looked for signal and that I had thought I saw it in a couple of the images. And I gave him file numbers. Uh, he went back in the room and I made a point to go outside and you know check my email or something. And it took about 20 minutes. Well, I took the data back again to the coffee shop, and I was going through them, and sure enough, there were waves just like the ones I saw the previous day in, you know, one of the file numbers that I had told him. So, what were you thinking at this point? I got him. Lawrence called back home to report to his advisor and figure out what steps to take next. He uh, told me I could come home, come back to California right away, but he wanted me to go in and talk to our collaborator and tell him the story firsthand. So, yeah, so the next morning I had basically the most awkward conversation of my life. I had to go in there and tell the our collaborator that, you know, what I had found. You know, I don't think he had uh, anything to do with the, you know, the, the actual fraud and so i think he was genuinely shocked and and i don't think he actually thought it was true and so you know his suggestion is that we all three uh, myself him and the postdoc all go into the microscopy room and set it up together that day and make it work we weren't really able to all three work in there for very long and with with things not working and one of the funny things that happened during that day is so we were taking images and trying to see this flash move across the screen and i noticed while we were taking the images the postdoc had his hand on the focus knob of the microscope while the movie was being taken and every once in a while he would you know flick the focus knob real fast back and forth you know, he would never do that when you're taking a movie or something. You want it to be in focus and stay in focus. But he was trying to get any little flash to go across the screen that might make us think that there's signal in that movie. You know, he was very desperate. And then there was the fallout with the postdoc. I, I mean, that was the whole other thing that happened that day is that, you know, I had to make it clear to him that I had tricked him. So that's got to be shocking to him, right? That's the first time he knows that anybody ever expected him of this fraud that he had been doing for years. For the rest of that day, he wouldn't make eye contact with me. He went outside and had a cigarette probably 15 times, but he didn't really, you know, he didn't try to explain things to me or anything. He just acted uncomfortable. That was a very, very uncomfortable day. You know, I was just happy to be going back to the hotel. And so I just went back to my room and I was, you know, relaxing. I think I was watching the news and it was late. There was a knock on my door, 
And it was like... I didn't go to the door because I couldn't imagine who was knocking on my door like that. And I thought that it might be the postdoc. And so what I was thinking is, you know, did he follow me here? Because that's the only way he could find my room, because those hotels won't give it out. So he must have followed as the PI drove me home and watched what room I went into and then waited, you know, waited. It was like four hours later. So I don't know, he was like stewing over this for four hours and he comes up to my room and knocks on my door. But I, didn't, I wasn't sure it was him until he said, you know, Lawrence, I know you're in there. It was clearly him outside my door. And then my phone rang my hotel room. I picked it up and said hello, and there was just breathing on the other end. Um, well, I waited a few minutes, and then I just sort of peeked out the window to see if anybody was there, and nobody was there anymore. That was definitely weirded out. You know, it's a long way from faking data to murder or, you know, right. but, uh, but, you know, it's still weird to follow somebody to their room and, you know, I didn't know what he wanted. I, I wasn't looking forward to the, that night of sleep, you know, I, I, I didn't feel real comfortable going to sleep there. I decided to change hotels. So I packed up my stuff and I, you know, I was, it, I was kind of scared for the walk down to the hotel lobby because, you know, I didn't know if he was just waiting down the, the hall or something to confront me or something. This kind of reminds me of, uh, like, No Country for Old Men, you know, when they're... Yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. Where he's, like, going from hotel to hotel and and the guy is waiting outside. And yeah. He, Let me ask you something. What's the most you ever lost in a coin toss? Lawrence changed hotels without incident. There were no more knocks on the door, late night calls, and Lawrence went back home to California the next day. This was four years ago. And then I kind of forgot about it for a while. So I mean, why, why do you think he did this? What, what do you think he was going through his mind when he decided to fake these results? Well, you know, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure to publish, definitely. And, uh, you know, I, I think that he probably couldn't get good results and decided that it would be easier to make them up. Do you think you could ever see yourself in his situation? Do you sympathize with him? Um, well, no, no. I haven't been tempted to do anything like that, certainly not. But there's definitely a lot of pressure. You know, I mean, you see people trying so hard to get publications um, so they can get a job, you know, the job they've wanted for so long. And I think it's misperceived if you felt that much pressure to do that, to, you know, just make a living, right? Because I don't think you have to. I mean, he had an MD and a PhD, but people... People do misperceive the pressure. I mean, you're, you're a grad student now. Do you feel the intense pressure? Well, I sort of feel like, you know, if I just work hard, you know, I'm going to make a living. I'd like to do well, but I don't feel intense pressure to get a science paper. I have confidence that if I just keep doing work, you know, just put in a good day's work every day, it'll be fine. Did this change your view of, of science at all? You seem to think it was just kind of like an isolated thing. And, but did you think differently about science, about what you were doing? Well, I definitely felt jaded to a certain extent about what I believed. You know, I, I didn't look at data the same way. Certainly not, right? I learned from it. It's an experience. You know, before that, I would have been less likely to wonder if data was faked. I mean, now I, look at, I definitely look at things more critically. Sure. It, it hasn't soured me on the whole 
enterprise, right? I mean, I, I do think it's isolated. I think most scientists do a good job and are honest. That standard is emphasized. You know, you're supposed to, you, your data are, you know, sacred. And I think most people uphold that. But I, but I now know for a fact that there are people who don't. In the end, Lawrence learned the valuable, if somewhat cliche, lesson that things are not always what they seem. Lawrence maintains his faith in the sanctity of data and the search for truth. After all, it was the data that proved the truth about the postdoc's fraud. For Lawrence, that's proof plenty that the scientific method does its job. Just as there will always be imposters, there will always be people like Lawrence to catch them. It's built into the process, and for that, we should all be thankful. Matt Larson is a graduate student in the biophysics program and host of KZSU's The Ground State. And, just in case you were wondering what happened to that postdoc, Lawrence says he lost his job as a result of fabricating data, but now works at the NIH, that's the National Institute of Health, doing clinical trials. We've arrived at our last story for the show, Roos number 3, Waves, a memoir from Stanford author Maria Hummel about the allure of curly hair and the chemical lengths she went to to achieve it. Now that I'm four months pregnant with my first child, it's time to tally up my disappointing genes. My size 11 wide feet, cavity-prone teeth, eyesight that deteriorated in my 20s. Worst of all, I was born without curls. I remained resolutely bald until my first birthday. My scalp sprouted a few boyish wisps that my mother pinched with pink barrettes to signal that after three sons, she and my father had finally produced a girl. A girl, cheered their friends, a blonde even, but my hair turned out to have the same fine texture as my New England mother's, the same stick straightness she'd spent decades perming and pressing into curls. My limp inheritance confirmed her conviction that we would strive for everything in life, riches, education, power, and beauty. None of these would come easily to our family. Ease was for other people. Work was for us. When one of my mom's friends visited with her hair superior daughter, I saw my mother zero in on Sheila's red corkscrews. For a moment, she gazed at them, a cloud of admiration crossing her face. Then her hand stole up and touched her own fake waves, and the admiration changed to scorn. Look at Sheila, she said to me. She's got curls. We didn't get those. For holidays and family gatherings, my mother deployed endless strategies to disguise this deficiency. I submitted to them with gratitude. Pink rollers padded my skull at night. Braids bound the straightness back into respectable captivity. We even practiced the ancient art of pin curls, coils of hair fastened close to the scalp that vaguely resembled the onset of ringworm. 
Yet in the morning, I felt what it was like to be surrounded by spirals and ringlets, a collection of temporary friends who responded to everything I said. My face radiated in the mirror, not me exactly, but a portrait of me, one that had finally been given the right frame. In seventh grade, I wanted to have curls all the time. I cut out a photograph from Seventeen magazine that showed a young blonde sitting in a black dress at the edge of a European square. Her hair was chin-length and curly. Her shins stretched out before her as if she had nothing to do all day but sun herself in this vacant, glamorous place. Whenever I gazed at the picture, I felt something shift inside me, the way I did when my French teacher addressed me by my chosen French name, Dominique. It was as silky as a black skirt against bare knees. Dominique, its syllables rippled and waved. I couldn't change my daily winter uniform, long underwear, jeans, wool socks, boots, a turtleneck, a sweater, a parka, a hat, mittens, and a scarf. I couldn't change Vermont's bleak white horizons or the jammed, steamy hallways of my school. I couldn't be older or freer or far away, but I could go to my mother and ask for curls, this time the permanent kind. She was only too happy to administer her private alchemy, a Tony home perm, a relic of her childhood. Her mother, Margie, had begun chemically altering her daughter's hair when they were nine, around the time six sets of Tony twins traveled to 70 cities around the country in Lincoln Continentals with pink and white luggage trailers that resembled the Tony box. It was the first media blitz in advertising history. As my mother showed me how to snag a damp lock with the Tony Kitts end paper, how to roll it tightly around a rod and soak it with solution, a sense of family ritual overcame me. The chemicals' foul incense pervaded the room, and I felt a rush of hope that permanent might really mean what it said, that beauty would come to me and stay. Everyone's hair is composed of keratin and other proteins. In wavy hair, the sulfur atoms on these proteins actually bond with one another. They pair up a lot, especially at a distance along the shaft, and this makes the hair bend. In straight hair, they stay detached. A perm makes the shy atoms connect. It was first introduced on a London stage in 1906 by a German shoemaker's son named Karl Ludwig Nessler. He was a handsome man who burned his wife's hair off perfecting his machine, a chandelier of wires that poured electricity down into a spiky crown of brass cylinders. His procedure took 10 hours. First, Nestler's assistants applied a reeking mixture of cow urine and water to his volunteer's hair to break its chemical bonds. Then the assistants connected her to the machine, wrapping the soaked sections of her hair around the two-pound cylinders. 
as the coils heated Nestler Douster with a second round of chemicals, and they all waited six more hours for the toxic bath to refix the bonds to the shape of the rollers. Why would anyone sit through this? One simple reason. Nestler promised the lady the ultimate transformation. She could finally do more than bend her hair. She could change its entire chemistry. Once the curlers were all set, my mother hovered over the timer while I studied the directions. I could choose between body, waves, and curls, each illustrated by a brunette with increasingly lush cascades. My hand strayed to curls. You want waves, countered my mother. There was the same note of warning in her voice as when I wanted to order the most expensive sundae on the menu at Friendly's. I sighed, and she set the timer. The tiny ticking began. While I dabbed the acid trickles from my forehead, my mother turned back to the dining room table where she was cutting out a pattern for a shirt. On the refrigerator, she had taped the saying, Work is love made visible. Beside it hung a hand-drawn chart of chores for Saturday mornings. Most of the check marks were hers. Inside the fridge sat a sour yeast mixture for homemade bread. She took it out, added flour, then went back to cutting the flannel. I wondered if my hair was really changing. The chemicals felt prickly and warm. Across my mind drifted the blonde in the black dress in the empty square. Her hair was like a separate entity from her face. It had its own drama. If you passed her in the hall at school, you'd see the hair first, and then you'd see the girl. The words tumbled out. Do you think I'm pretty, I asked. My mother's hands halted in the cloth. A sense of alarm filled the room, and I blushed. In the silence, I could feel her approbation that this was not the kind of question she wanted me to be asking about myself, that she had seen and noted my new proliferation of jewelry, my plastic stashes of lip gloss, the ad I clipped out for a free catalog from Barbizon Modeling School. Want to be a model, it asked, or just look like one? She nodded and then shook her head, as if she understood my yearning but could not condone it, as a government could not condone its citizens quitting their jobs to go find themselves. Vanity did not belong at this table with the homemade bread, the hand-stitched buttons. The dryer buzzed downstairs. She glanced at the timer. Call me if it dings, she said, and headed for the steps. I stared out the black window until I heard a chunk of ice fall from the eaves. The sound made me shiver. Winter could go on for months. Sometimes it lasted right through May, and then you had no spring at all. I picked up the perm's directions and read them for the umpteenth time. In each picture, the brunette was smiling, but in the picture with curls, she seemed a little bit happier. I grabbed the timer and twisted the knob back.
The timer rang just as my mother reappeared with a hamper of folded laundry. She set the hamper down immediately and guided me to the sink. The rods clacked into the stainless steel basin. My hair tumbled after them, short and wet and rank. She turned on the faucet and washed my head in warm water, her fingers combing out the new curls. I closed my eyes and gave myself over to the sensation, the heat, the quick, tenderness of her hands, the putrid smell, the whiteness of the water foaming the drain. When I raised my head, everything about me felt tighter and loftier. Standing before my bedroom mirror the next morning, I examined my hair. Or rather, I fastidiously organized the earrings on my bureau and glanced up occasionally, afraid and mystified by what I saw. My head's shape was somewhere between a lampshade and a mushroom cloud. The curls felt like a softened beard. Their hue reminded me of the kind of cheese that ages in caves. Suddenly, I heard my mother's slippers whisking down the hall. A strange and stubborn resistance filled me. I shut my door and sat down on the bed. Dearie? She rapped lightly. I'm naked, I called. I'll be out in a minute. There was a pause and the footsteps retreated. A few more minutes passed. My eyes fell on the photograph from 17. I grabbed it and tilted my head back like the blonde girl, catching my eyes in the mirror. Better. I pouted and stretched out my legs. Better. I could feel light warming me from some distant place. I squirted my head with both hairspray and perfume, hoping to mask the creeping reek. Better. I wouldn't spend my life doing chores at home. I dotted my mouth with pink passion lip gloss. Better, I would go to foreign cafes and sip dark, bitter things. I finished off the presentation with two strokes of blush to my eyelids that I had read somewhere would give me a sultry look. Dominique was ready now. Dominique wouldn't seek her mother's opinion, wouldn't wait for her eyes to soften, for her to reach out and make practical suggestions. Dominique was impetuous, carefree. I grabbed my lunch and caught the bus while my mother was downstairs getting beef out of the freezer. At school, I stopped in the bathroom and took off my winter hat tamping down the static with dribbles of water from the sink. By the time I emerged, only Angela Stockton was ahead of me, hurrying to class. If there was anyone whose opinion dominated my life more than my mother, it was Angela Stockton. Angela had a stable of boyfriends and blue jeans with bows at the ankle. She ruled a court of pretty, trendy girls whose jealousy of one another was only exceeded by their disgust at everyone else. She heard my footsteps and turned. Her eyes roved over my hair, my brows. For a moment, I wondered, hopefully, if I had achieved the kind of era-ending fashion statement that Heidi LaPoole had made when she chopped off all her beautiful schoolgirl hair for a Duran Duran flop. Then Angela's red mouth opened and she began to laugh. The lilting sound echoed through the empty hall. I slowed down, but she kept giggling. Her little peeps stuck in my ears as I followed her into French class. 
I slid into my seat, opening my textbook and gazing at Paris, wishing I could disappear into the photographs of blue-striped awnings and the Arc de Triomphe. Bonjour, Dominique, my teacher said twice before I heard her. When I finally looked up, the awareness struck me. I was just Maria. I was Maria more than ever in the white turtleneck stained at the armpits and the J.C. Penny jeans. I was Maria, daughter of Margaret, daughter of Margie, resident of a plain raised ranch on Poker Hill Road in a small town in the middle of nowhere. I swallowed. Bonjour, madame. My cheeks burned as I felt all my classmates notice my red eyelids, my grizzled head, but I didn't care so much about the bad hair now. I was realizing something far worse. What if nothing ever changed me? What if I'd always be Maria, no matter where I went or what I wore? In my mind, I saw my mother on her knees, scrubbing the kitchen floor. Pink rollers studded her hair. Her hips wagged in hand-sewn jeans as she rubbed the sponge harder and harder. I saw the blonde in the black dress get up and stalk across the square until she vanished, her footsteps loud and hollow. At 13, I looked in the mirror and saw my own face. At 34 and four months pregnant, I see my mother's, her high forehead, her wide mouth. When we smile, our teeth crowd forward like actors in an amateur play. I have the same crow's feet from spending years squinting into the same Vermont wind. Though I renounced perms years ago, I can suddenly sense the onset of curl vigilance again. It's not that I yearn for this child or any of my future children to have ringlets. I want them to be happy, healthy, and all the vague good things you wish for your offspring. But I also want them to love me, and because I cannot help it, I want them to be like me. Even months before this birth, my eyes are sharpening, keen to see the characteristics that make a family a we, unique in the rest of the world. I was recently with some friends at a restaurant examining their baby son for the first time. When I arrived, he was sitting on his father's lap, his cheeks brimming, a shock of blonde hair, gorgeous blue eyes. His mother looked tired and radiant. Are you ready for this, she asked me, but just then the baby reached for her, and she swiveled away before I could answer. We ordered waffles and we swapped pregnancy stories. I told them how I couldn't stop sleeping on my belly, that I kept waking at night and pushing myself back to my side. As I talked, mother and father switched roles back and forth. One ate breakfast, the other dandled the baby. He twisted and whined. The conversation drifted. I found myself fixating on his scalp. There I detected one towhead wisp winging upward, the other swirling against his temple. I shouted with jealous glee, He's got curls! 
His blonde father glanced around to see if anyone else had noticed my outburst. Maybe, he shrugged. I don't have curls. But you do, I insisted to his mother, pointing at her thick, dark locks. I mean, you have waves. He could have waves. She nodded, looking somewhat puzzled. You might be right, she said. I think he does, I said, with all the conviction envy can muster. I think he's got some already. I reached out to touch the fuzz. It was softer than a breath. It wound ever so gently around my finger. The baby's eyes met mine and his hand wagged. It was like watching someone wave goodbye from his airplane window. You don't know if he really sees you or if he's just signaling the launch of his journey to some faraway place that you realize with a rush of regret and gladness, you will never have to go. Each step is moving, it's moving me up. Moving, it's moving me up. Maria Hummel is a Draper lecturer in creative nonfiction at Stanford University. Her curl envy is currently under control. Today's program was produced by myself, Charlie Mintz, with help from Dan Hirsch, Bonnie Swift, and Jonah Willingans was engineered by Dan Hirsch. Thanks to Tommy Wallach, Maria Hummel, Matt Larson, and Lawrence Klein for all their help with those stories. Thanks to Andy Seymour, George Pritzker, and the band Pascal for original music. For their generous support, we'd like to thank Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West. Remember that you can find a podcast of this episode and every other episode of our show on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu, or on iTunes U. That was Imposter. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Charlie Mintz.